Biblical Discernment, Neuroscience, and Trauma on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions to the problems that people face. You know, I've been looking forward to today and the release of this particular podcast as we think about neuroscience and trauma. We're moving forward in May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and it's important for us to always address these types of issues and to give a a biblical background. And today, we want to demonstrate that that we're not afraid of science. We want to make sure that we we understand science and understand it well. And, And particularly as it relates to this issue of trauma, we definitely need to understand what's happening, what we can know relative to neuroscience and the brain and that sort of thing. And today with me, I have two guests. Ernie Baker, who most of our listeners are very familiar with, and I'm so grateful for for Ernie. Thank you for being here. But I want to introduce a, another brother here with us as well, Dr. Eric Everhart. He's a practicing clinical neuropsychologist and licensed psychologist. He's a professor and director of the Cognitive Neuroscience Laboratory at East Carolina University. His clinical and research expertise includes electrophysiology, emotion processing, and behavioral sleep medicine. Eric, I'm so grateful that you would be willing to join us and to, to help us to think through these areas that aren't our everyday study. So so thank you for, for working through this and helping us to do the same. Thank you for being with us. Well, it is my pleasure to be here today. So hopefully I can help out. Now, for our listeners, what I just described about you and what you do every day, that's in a different universe for many people. And so uh, I'm sure intriguing and interesting. So just explain, Eric, if you can, a little bit about what you do and some of your research interests particularly. Sure. On a day-to-day basis, I, I'm in the classroom, uh, so I teach and I train undergraduates and doctoral students in clinical psychology and neuropsychology. As part of that, I, I see patients, so I have patient care, both inpatient and outpatient, where I will often provide a diagnosis for various conditions like Alzheimer's disease or traumatic brain injuries, uh, various neurodevelopmental disorders, and so forth. And then I also have a research lab that I work in with my doctoral students and some undergraduates where we examine things like electrophysiological processing during various emotions and how it might relate to sleep and sleep disorders. And so a typical day is pretty busy, but very enjoyable. So Sounds quite intriguing. I, I maybe should come visit. I'd like to love to watch all that unfold. That's so intriguing to me. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about trauma today, and Ernie and I have spoken in the weeks preceding about trauma-informed therapy and a very popular book, Body Keeps the Score by Besser van der Kolk. And this is a very popular book, and people have different opinions about it. But but I want to ask you about it, Eric, because I think this is sort of the, the framework of the discussion for a lot of people downstream as we think about the issue of trauma and, and the body itself and, and how trauma impacts the body. So uh, just raise some of your, your concerns or, or give some of your perspective on this very popular book, The Body Keeps the Score. Sure. Happy to do so. To start, I would say that the science behind trauma is exceedingly complicated and every individual who has experienced trauma is unique. However, books like this, well, they they attempt to simplify terms to make it relatable. And when we do so, we often lose critical information and gain misinformation. And it's very similar to, I guess, maybe one example is the sort of the chemical imbalance phrase that was pretty common 
20 or 30 years ago where patients would say, I have a chemical imbalance, and that was used to account for a wide range of mood and affect-related behaviors and symptoms, but yet really provides no explanation of what's going on. And the book is impressive and has some merit and relevance to those who study and treat trauma, and so that's all good. It's a vast amount of information to try to present and unpack the neurophysiological pieces of trauma. But the concern for me professionally is that the work blends in a variety of information. Some of it's anecdotal. Some of it is what we would call pseudoscience. And then it's blended in with science. And that's not uncommon for books like this that are written for similar similar populations. I would make the assumption maybe that this is done to help the layperson understand maybe a person with trauma history or perhaps some practitioners that don't have a, a neuroscience background. But the result can be misleading and sort of the hype that's raised based on a case study that's not able to be replicated or some type of anecdotal personal experience with an intervention. And that can result in ineffective techniques and inefficiency. And uh, there are some examples of that. If you'd like for me to provide some of those, I'd be happy to. Yeah, I think the people listening would be somewhat familiar. I think maybe a couple of those examples would be helpful. Yeah. And and here's one great example. Um, When the book discusses EMDR, which is a a widely used and popular intervention these days for trauma, part of the the description of that technique involves a person that he came into contact with who I guess eventually became a healthcare professional. But this person, she introduced EMDR to Vanderkolk and she described how she was able to vividly remember uh, a trauma that occurred to her when she was going through this. And I think maybe as a result, she became a practitioner in this. But then Vanderkolk also describes his own experience with EMDR as as provided by one of his colleagues. So apparently he and one of his colleagues were testing this out. And, you know, there might be some concerns with that, but the, the fact is the claims aren't testable from a scientific perspective. And so they may have some inherent emotional and intellectual value to a layperson or a practitioner interested in, in, administering the technique, but that's not really a testable claim. And it's interesting. I, I found when I was sort of doing background research, Vanderkolk said in an interview about this book and EMDR, right about the same time it came out, he said, I would never say that EMDR is the treatment of choice because we haven't studied every possibility. But EMDR is a treatment or a very good treatment for one-time trauma and also a very useful adjunct for more chronic trauma. So that's sort of a, a separation from what people bring out of his book. You know, he's, he's, he's even being cautionary on it. And granted, this was, you know, nine years ago, and there's a, a lot of other research that's come out. It's still cautionary. And, and it's one of these reasons that, and I'll avoid getting into the weeds, but I would encourage listeners to go out and look at the controversy with this technique and go to source articles. because I, I can't stress that enough. So you can make some educated decisions, but most of the science and research came from one person. And so, and we can talk about hype and, and some of the things to watch out for, but the American Psychological Association currently recommends this as conditional, which means they don't have strong evidence to recommend it. So that it's not top tier on their list. I think those are, those are very significant points that you're making. And, and I would, I would dare say if you and I are looking at some similar research, Vanderkolk at, at different levels of education has been sort of uh, cast out of favor uh, with some of the, the newer research that, that you're seeing appear. And then, yeah, the cautionary tales relative to the EMDR approach, I think uh, I would reiterate in some of the things that I've, I've been reading and researching as well. You talked about hype and I, I think this is a really important key. I mean, you and I, you 
probably studied this way more in depth than, than even what I have uh, relative to the history of psychiatry and the history of psychology. And what we see here are, are theoretical approaches that are hypothesized and then, then people work through different means, methods, trying to, to understand how things happen and implement methods and so on. And psychiatry and psychology has a has a, a sordid past, really interesting past, as you see it cycle back from uh, what several historians call romantic versus biological psychiatry. And, and you see these moments of hype. You mentioned the chemical imbalance theory, for example. And there are moments where, man, we're really excited. We see, oh, this could be, this could possibly be the thing that's that gives explanatory value to certain things. And then we see sort of, sort of crash and burn. And, and then we see new things pop up, right? Well, we're still a young science. Give us a little bit longer, we'll figure this out kind of thing. Help us to discern between hype and legitimate science. Because listen, we, we you know, in biblical counseling world, even from the beginning, we're not afraid of real science. We, we want to embrace legitimate science, but there's always this battle back and forth between what is, what is hype and what is legit. And help us to have some categories to, to think through that. I think the warning signs, and there's always warning signs, so we have to be really careful. But I will, I'll start out with Go to source articles. I would say I'm wary of anything with Google searches or news or media or social media and even popular books, even if they're written by professionals, because they're going to do exactly what we're talking about, sort of reduce information to make it understandable. So I would recommend things like PubMed and um, NIH, if you're going to the source articles, they have lists that are pretty good. But beyond that, sort of the, the warning signs are when someone uses primarily sort of anecdotal, personalized experiences as evidence. Those things are, again, not testable as science. In science, we like to be able to falsify sort of our claims so that we can test things and either say this supports it or it doesn't. And if there's no way to, to do that, then I would be very wary of that. For instance, if it's not connected to other research or peer review from established professionals, uh, and I'm wary of that. If there's no sort of self-correction, so for instance, if there's um, journal articles that suggest the opposite and nobody ever goes back to sort of revise a theory, those are things to be wary of. One of my favorites, is, and I wish I could say, I got this quote from a colleague of mine, but uh, extraordinary claims without extraordinary evidence, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, and it's, it's a good time to mention maybe another one of those interventions like uh, neurofeedback, which is mentioned in that book. And it can be useful. I understand the technology really well. For many years, the American Academy of Neuropsychology said it was investigational. So they've retired that, by the way, because it was so long ago. But uh, there was a publication that came out a couple of years ago, and uh, I think it's the Journal of Clinical neurophysiology, they came to the same conclusion with regard to diagnostics. I'm not talking about intervention now, but this is a great example for diagnosing traumatic brain injury, sort of mild. It does not, so far, we haven't been able to demonstrate the difference between that and say depression or anxiety. So for a variety of reasons, doesn't mean it doesn't hold promise, but we're just not there yet. But I see extraordinary claims among practitioners uh, who go into neurofeedback where they claim it can cure whatever ails it, depression, anxiety, brain injury, autism, we can go down the list. And I'm always wary of that because I know that there are enormous fees for that type of intervention. And so people can be really taken advantage of, not to mention poorly trained. <laughs> so I've seen a number of people just open up a shop after a, a weekend workshop for that. So I, I'm wary of, if, if you're seeking that kind of intervention, I'd say 
you really, really have to investigate the credentials of that person. Uh, Eric, what you just gave us is priceless, honestly. You know, and these are the type. This is a type of language that I try and help my students to discern when they're reading some of these books early on. It seems like, or it may be, and could be that this is possible. And people read that as if we're talking about exact science. That's more philosophical. And and to understand and interpret it as it's being written, not in the extraordinary claims that that you're describing, which I think is helpful. Ernie, I want to get you in here in just a second. I'm going to ask one more question. And then you guys have had lots of conversation, Ernie, you and Eric, and uh, he's been a helpful resource to you even, you know, over the years, just batting back and forth things that, that will come out in literature and that sort of stuff. And I want you guys to discuss some of that literature. But Eric, before I, I let you guys jump into that, what I'd love to, to get a little bit more detail on, because we're talking about this issue of, of trauma itself, Give us some of the explanation of the preciseness with which we can tell in neuroscience whether an individual is anxious by doing some sort of basic brain scan, which is what many will claim on some level here. There are many, many different types of brain scans available, but I'll kind of stick with a couple. You know, when we're just doing a structural brain scan, like an MRI that just looks at parts of the brain, you know, it's really difficult to, to say that there are any differences unless you have some really extreme groups you know, that are sort of developmental in nature. But the, the more sort of recent technology with fMRI that sort of looks at uh, blood volume differences and so forth are, are more sensitive. And these types of technologies can often identify group-related differences in various regions of the brain. So, for instance, you have a group of highly anxious individuals and a group of individuals who aren't. And there's typically some type of task in that in that study where they're viewing something, listening to something that's designed to elicit. But and so so you can find these group-related differences in places like the amygdala or prefrontal cortex and connections. And there's some scientific value in that because we often we want to understand the science behind anxiety and what's going on and, and other disorders, so to speak. But there are three things to consider. The differences are correlations, so it doesn't determine cause and effect. So causal agents could be other parts of anatomy, environmental, long-term influences, those kinds of things. So in those types of studies, someone has to interpret the findings, and you can interpret those in, in several different ways. So that's one thing. Another sort of cautionary note is that these are lab-based paradigms. And so in the real world, some of these may have limited generalizability to, to real-time phenomena that someone is experiencing. Looking at pictures of faces that are angry or pictures that might induce anxiety is, is a fantastic tool in the lab, but how does that correspond? So, and I'd say the last thing is it's difficult then to take that, a group study, and extrapolate it and apply it to a single individual in the course of time. Sure, there is a science behind it and it's, it's got merit and value and it's really important for us to understand, but the biggest caution is trying to then reduce that to a single person. I've heard you say that a number of times, the caution of reductionism, and that, that has really been a, a thorn in the side of the history of psychiatry, if we're honest, the wanting to have explanatory power, and, and it leads us to reductionism. And that's a human issue. I think we do that in theology as well uh, at times where we want to reduce something down into its its simplest parts. And it doesn't give it proper explanatory power. This has been helpful. Ernie, I want to give you an opportunity to discuss some of the things that you guys have been talking about, even even some of the, the, the quotes and different things that you guys have talked through. So help lead us here. I'm having fun just listening. So this is, <laughs> this is great. These are the types of conversations that Eric and I have been having for years. So I'm, I'm thankful that other uh, listeners are getting to listen in now. So 
couple of quotes. Uh, people talk about amygdalas being hijacked, and I won't go into all the details of things. I've been listening to a lot of trauma-informed presentations, and that gets talked about a lot, of, about the amygdala being hijacked. Here's a quote from a, a journal article, and I just want to read part of it. And then, like, what are you hearing as someone who does neuroscience with what's being said in this journal article? So it says, in addition, research has found that the brain is most malleable to rewire when in an anxious state. In other words, in order for neurogenesis to occur, it's essential for the amygdala to be activated when applying methods designed to impact thoughts and beliefs. This is important since it's not unusual that those seeking counseling for anxiety are also taking drugs such as Xanax designed to sedate the amygdala, therefore impeding the neurological processes necessary for neuroplasticity to occur. So that's just stated as a fact, as if that's a fact. What are you hearing? Yeah, and I'll kind of, I'll stick to sort of the statement I think where that came from and sort of my background research, it's not a, a peer-reviewed article. So it's more of a general statement that someone made. And so the, the scientific background for such a statement uh, is difficult to determine. But I'll say, like I say, for many things, activity in the amygdala is not an all or none event. If that were the case, then we would be in a lot of trouble as humans, I think. Um, it's always uh, sort of continuous. And so I have questions like, well, how much activity would one need to rewire you know, thinking or memories and so forth? And we don't have the answer to that. So again, it, it's a rather extreme statement to say that you know, neurogenesis won't occur unless you have this, which we don't know how much of this is. So again, sort of cautionary and how one might interpret that. It makes sense that benzodiazepines, by the way, would, would inhibit the amygdala um, for you know, people who are experiencing anxiety. I'll say that that's typically not the first line med medication treatment for anxiety disorders, by the way, but uh, there are lots of patients who are on it. In terms of what I'm hearing in, in science and, and the community, it's sort of what I said. This is a simplification of a process that is much more complicated and involves more brain regions than just amygdala. So, so here's another quote. And I think my concern is when someone claiming to be a biblical counselor state something like this as fact, we're asking our counselees to put their hope in this. It's stated as if, okay, here's your problem, and this is part of the solution then. This is the hope that we're giving people. So that's why I think it's great that we, we have you here just giving us some insight and just being a bit cautionary of, okay, what are we asking people to put their hope in? So here's the other statement, and this is out of a book that came out uh, maybe a year or so ago, brain scans of people experiencing flashbacks show that trauma pushes the Broca's area, the speech center of the brain, offline. A person with a deactivated Broca's area cannot put thoughts and feelings into words. It's difficult to change a thought you can't fully articulate. What are you hearing? Okay, so with that particular quote in reference, it's actually... I think they're referencing Vanderkolt's book in a specific section where Vanderkolt talks about a, a single patient who they observed in an imaging study that Broca's area was deactivated. That's the reference. I could not find a journal article that was published with regard to that, but I sure did find that quote in other places. And so it's being used. It's out there. 
this becomes almost like pseudoscience because it's not replicated. I couldn't find, I was looking for more data. Um, but beyond that, if it were true that in all cases, trauma experiencing flashbacks and so forth deactivate Broca's area, then all of our patients experiencing that wouldn't be able to talk. And that's certainly not the case, which goes back to, we don't live in a dichotomous world. All of these symptoms are on a continuum. And it's true that maybe you can get disturbed enough, aroused enough, you know, or panicky enough where you're not articulating like you should. And you can see some changes in Broca's area. But again, it's a continuum. And it doesn't mean that just because I'm experiencing something that's traumatizing or reliving something, it doesn't mean I'm not going to be able to talk at all. Again, if that were the case, none of our patients would be able to do so during that time. So, well, Let me give you another quote. This is from a, a blog article, and this is about amygdala hijacking. And I, I'm not going to read the whole quote, but just some segments. It says this, data from our senses, eyes, ears, touch, etc., enters the brain through the thalamus, which relays impulses to other parts of the brain, including the amygdala, which is like a filing cabinet that stores our memories of emotional experiences in life and triggers our flight, fight, or freeze responses to new life experiences. Due to small differences in the distances to be traveled, impulses arrive at the amygdala a few nanoseconds before they get to the neocortex. If the sensory data triggers an intense emotional memory in the amygdala, these, those emotions can trigger an impulsive reaction, essentially hijacking our mouth or body before we are able to rationally process the information. Then the end of the blog post says, they found that when the amygdala is highly stimulated with intense emotions, it utilizes more blood and oxygen than normal, leaving less of both for the neocortex. This deficit causes a corresponding decrease in our capacity for reasoning, problem solving, and impulse, impulse control. This can lead to a temporary loss of 10 to 15 IQ points. What do you think? Okay. So it is understood in science that with recognizing sort of fear types of stimuli or experiences that could be harmful to us, that we, we have a sort of a fast pathway and a slow pathway. And one seems to be more uh, instinct and goes through the amygdala. So, you know, the best example of that is you're walking on the Appalachian Trail and you come around the trail and there's a snake in front of you and you temporarily freeze. You know, it's the fight, flight, or freeze. And it's thought that that might be protective. But then the sort of the slow pathway evaluates what you see. And it turns out it was a, a stick that was kind of curved up and looked like a, a rattlesnake. And so that's sort of the slow pathway. So those are, are fairly well understood scientific principles. However, sort of to, to temper that, the, the fact, well, in terms of where memory, memory is actually stored or experiences, it's not really one place as far as we understand. So it's not just the amygdala. That's certainly part of it, but emotion-related memories are associated with multiple anatomic structures and pathways. So again, sort of a simplification of what we understand. The last part of that uh, statement, though, that says it could lead to a temporary loss of 10 to 15 IQ points, I know of nowhere where that was tested. I think that's a, I couldn't find it. I, I think it's originally in Goldman's book on emotional intelligence, emotional EQ, something along that lines. It basically says it's as if we lose 10 to 15 IQ points because we're thinking with less brain power and capacity, but that has not been scientifically tested. In order to test that, you'd have to give someone an IQ test while they're experiencing those things. And that's something that I'm not sure we can do. 
Eric, as we consider these things, uh, th- this is the type of language that's being thrown out thrown out there, and, and people are responding to, to some of these ideas as factual. And as you mentioned, there's just a lot more that's complex that's going on in, in this language using uh, brain neuroscience as sort of a, a platform, if you will, catapulting uh, other ideas. And, and I think that's the thing that if I were to, to share concern, uh, that's the thing that I'm, I'm most concerned about. And, and as you mentioned, uh, you, you take a person in a laboratory studying particular things, you put them in the field, and they're just lots of variables that, you know, it, it's hard to, to measure some of those things distinctly. So I appreciate your measured expression and concern for some of these things, all the while also giving proper credence to the things that we know and, and maybe things that we don't know. Now, I want to give you sort of a last word because I think that would be important. Maybe some of the things that we've talked through and covered, you know, where we want to offer clarity or, or, you know, questions that maybe Ernie and I haven't even thought of that that could be helpful a part of this discussion. So uh, last few words. Sure. I, w- I would sort of close by saying, you know, Vanderkolt's book is important and, and has value in it, but I can't state enough to read it critically and go to source articles and pull out um, what can be supported versus what is just sort of, you know, anecdotal information. It's there that we get into trouble. And, you know, he's trying to tell a story (laughs) and there's a lot of information in there, but go to the source articles, be really careful and critical and take what what was useful and supported. But uh, some of these other things to be really wary of and, and, and also in terms of implementing with your clients or, or whoever you're working with. So that's the take-home message. The other take-home message is, remember, all of this is continuous. Even our sort of our DSM-5 manual sort of forces a dichotomy on, on human behavior when we know that's kind of artificial in a way. Yeah, so we're, we're forced with treating everybody as an individual, which is important. I can't recommend that enough. Yeah, super well said, brother. And I, I just want to say, you know, publicly how much I appreciate you and the work that you're doing. And, um, you know, as a believer entering into that world and the research that you're doing and and, uh, and your understanding here is, is so helpful in understanding the body that the Lord has has made us to live in, but yet not not losing that idea of individuals. The Lord made us as distinct individuals in how we respond to different scenarios at different times. It's fascinating. And I'm so grateful we have uh, wise brothers looking into it like you. So thanks for spending time with us today, Ernie, both you and Eric. So grateful for both of you guys and and your help thinking through these uh, very complex, difficult subjects. Thanks, Dale. Always good to be with you. Yeah, Thank you. Great to meet you and great to do this today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. You know, as we've been talking this month about mental health awareness, one of the places where I find our culture is infused with ideas, ideologies, the paradigm of secular mental health is really in our school systems. And I I don't want to speak anything particularly negative, although there could be lots to say. I do want to make you aware of a new curriculum that that we've rolled out, our high school curriculum. We were asked several years ago, is there a way that you all could produce something that gives biblical clarity on the social sciences? And so we dug in, we started to use some of our fundamental material, writing different curriculum, using some of our fellows to produce some uh, case studies and curriculum using books that that students will read through. And we've, we've created a high school curriculum. 
I want to encourage those of you who may teach at a Christian school. We have a way to utilize this curriculum. That was uh, the first place we were asked was in a Christian school. Can you please produce something for us? that could replace our social science curriculum. And and we've done that. Also, for those of you who homeschool, uh, this is a wonderful curriculum, I think, for those who are in you know, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, a little bit more mature, dealing with types of issues that, that teens would address from a biblical perspective that they'll see in their world all around them, some of the, the hot-button issues of our day, and us teaching them to think biblically about these otherwise labeled as mental health issues. And so uh, I want to encourage you uh, about that particular curriculum, our high school curriculum. It's available now for you to order uh, to have set up for the fall coming academic year 23 and 24. So we'd love to hear from you about that. If you are interested or if you want to make order, you can do that on our website, biblicalcounseling.com.